from a very wonderful woman who comes to the church often who came last Sunday and uh, many of you were here too and she was quite disturbed by the direct impression more than impression the fact that I did not seem uh, dismayed by the prospect of having to go to war um, there's an expectation that people like us will be pacifists or nonviolent, and and it was very disturbing to her she said she liked some of what I said but walked out actually more unsettled than she walked in and uh that of course is a very good question but I tried to answer it in my sermon talking about Arjuna and Krishna and William the Conqueror and all of those things which have to be faced but but that I don't want to repeat that sermon if you didn't hear it you can get a tape um, but there was one thought that was interesting to me that, I, that occurred to me when I was writing her back which is that Yogananda himself said and you, these are, this is one of those statements where you just have to say well he said it you don't know what to think about it because there's no way to verify it within our range of consciousness but Yogananda himself said that it was he, Yogananda who put the idea into President Truman's head, mind that he should go to war in Korea that he should stop the communist at a certain point because the communist regime, Yogananda stated represents the dark force in the world because of its uh, atheism you know, enthusiastic, open atheism and its disregard for human life. I mean, the communist threat, so to speak, has faded away and been replaced by the terrorist threat, but it's really the same picture. You know, Stalin murdered millions of his own people because it just didn't matter. I mean, that's the threat. It's the same as, it's not the all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life. So, so, Master thought it was important enough to inspire Harry Truman to go to war and we might not like that but there it is but then a further thought occurred to me which is that if presidents can be guided by the masters and Swamiji tells another interesting story about um, that was told to him by a yogi in India and Swamiji said he doesn't know again how to verify this but this is what actually happened is that the great saint or sage on whatever plane of consciousness who was in charge of China said to the, the sage who was in charge of Pakistan that, or India, excuse me, India that my boys are getting restless, the Chinese guardian said he said they really are pushing for a war so I'm going to have to let them go I'm going to have to let them fight He's, and uh, the sage from India said well I can understand that but he said, but I'll just let them go to a certain point. They'll only invade so far, and then they won't have to go any farther. I think that'll do enough. And the Indian sage said, fine. And in fact, what happened was, and I don't know the historical moment, but they did. They, and they, they even named the specific parallel, the, the point, the latitude or whatever you call it, where they would go. The Chinese invaded India, went exactly to that point, and for no reason at all stopped and went home. <laughs> so you have to recognize that Thoughts are universal and inspired by a great, there's, a, there's a, a greater power at work here. And God, this is the part that's so fascinating, God works through these great saints and sages. I mean, and this does relate right to our autobiography of a yogi. We have this story that's told to us that Babaji and Christ are guiding the development of the world. And they're guiding the spiritual evolution of the West. Well, How? by the instrument of the inspiration that those who are in tune with them receive. 
God can't act directly. There's no direct sort of God and then something happens. There's always some kind of human instrument involved in that. And, and we are always being influenced. Again, this is straight out of the autobiography. Thoughts are universal. We merely receive and respond. And that's why Christ said, for all those who received him. It's a choice that we make constantly. And national leaders are not really causing the destiny of their countries. They are also responding to karmic forces. They're brought to that position. That's how I think it was last week when I said, the master said Hitler wasn't personally responsible. He was the instrument of the karma. Stalin was personally responsible. Hitler was an instrument. You know, certain things had to happen. There were karmic forces that had to play out and Hitler had the capacity to be the instrument for them. Interestingly, when Yogananda was coming back from India in the 1930s, he tried to visit Hitler and was unsuccessful. And he said that it was sort of unclear at that point which way Hitler himself was going to go because he had a lot of power. And was he going to use it for evil or was he going to use it for good? And Master obviously wanted to go and try to influence it for good, but the karmic force was not strong enough for him to get through. Now. Interesting as all that is, it's actually exceedingly relevant to the present moment because what is going to influence George Bush? You know, and Colin Powell and all those advisors. You know, they're just, they're just instruments of destiny. It's uh, absurd to think that any of those little people is really directing the course of the planet. You know, really, get real. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're uh, forceful people. They wouldn't have risen to the position they're in, but they're not that forceful. And yet they really hold in their hand at this moment the fate of millions of people. But they don't. And that's the great relief. You know, it would be really scary if they did. <laughs> they don't. They're just instruments of collective karma and a much, much greater destiny and a destiny for the whole planet. But everybody can do their job better and worse. And so all of the force that we put out for Dharma now, however you define that, I was saying to this woman who was, you know, wanted, essentially wanted us to stand for nonviolence. I said, even though I'm saying all this, I'm not asking you to change because the, the mere presence of the idea of nonviolence acts as a balance uh, against the force of those who are militaristic in their response. Those who have a, a karma to be soldiers are, are also balanced by those who have a karma to be pacifists if it's a genuine pacifism and not just a veneer over an unwillingness to look at the situation, which of course there are, there are many different kinds, right? But, but really the main thing is George Bush will be influenced and we want to pray intensely to Babaji that he's the one sitting next to him, you know, not whoever his counterpart is on the other side, <laughs> whoever that is, you know? But the mere fact that there is so much prayer and just the fact that I may be wrong, but I believe they opened the baseball game with America the Beautiful and not with the Star Spangled Banner. Now that is really something. I mean, that's just a real, it's such a, a on one level, such a trivial thing, but, but there has been an instinctive rejection of the Star Spangled Banner, finally, because we just don't want to sing about bombs bursting in air. That just doesn't inspire us. What we're singing over and over, thousands of people, you know, God shed your grace on thee, on this country. And uh, Swamiji once remarked to a woman who was struggling to know what the right thing to do was. And he, she asked, you know, Swamiji, what should I do? I keep praying. I keep asking God what I should do. What does God want me to do? And Swamiji's answer was very interesting. 
He said, God only wants you to ask him. He doesn't really care what you do, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do. What matters is that you strive to be in tune with the Spirit. And on a certain level, there's a, a profound sincerity I see coming out. And maybe I'm naive, but it feels sincere. There feels like a sincerity because a lot of the people in our government are what, what people call these days, you know, men and women of faith, which is actually quite a wonderful word. I've also been hearing the word, the faith community, which is a marvelously non-sectarian way of describing it. It's those who have faith in God. Who cares what God it is? But you do get the impression, and we've seen an, an awful lot of face-on of just these men, mostly men, some women, just speaking right at you, right in the moment. And there is a ring of sincerity to the God bless us all, God guide us all. And we can give power to that with our prayers. It's not a small thing. So even if we stand in a peculiar position, because somehow that's just the position instinctively that seems like the right one, at least to me, and based on, not more than that, based on looking at what the masters say, um, here we are. But that doesn't mean that there's a huge, enormous range of choices, even once you choose a military response. And also, because the battle is so subtle, those folks are going to need a lot of intuition. They're going to have to you know, know things that it's not possible to know in order to be successful. In the same way that Master said that it was the masters of India who put the thought into Hitler's mind that he should divide his front and fight in Russia and also in other parts of Europe. And it was because of that that Hitler was defeated. And, it, and Master said it was the masters of India who put that thought into his mind, which was a stupid thing for him to do, and he knew better. But he somehow thought it was a good idea because they influenced him to do it so that the Allies could defeat him. So you hear things like that and you think, we are just tiny little bubbles on the sea of the infinite. But our power of sincere devotion, and uh, in the Bible it also said when the Lord wanted to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, remember? Where did I read that recently? But anyway, it was somewhere. And, and the Lord said, I won't destroy this town if you can find ten righteous men. And uh, they couldn't find ten righteous men, so they got wiped out, right? <laughs> but for the sake of ten righteous men, the whole city would have been spared. Because the power of saints, the power of sincere people, can just shift the whole karma. Mother Mary said, Mother Mary of Medjugorje said, these calamities are coming, but already because of the sincere response to my uh, apparition, my appearance here in Yugoslavia, one has been averted. Because it, all it is, it's just negative force and positive force. Positive force gets stronger, negative force gets dissipated. It's physics. So, so even though, you know, we just have a real, real part to play that's really, it's not, it's not sentimental. You know, it's not just to make us feel good. It's really a job. And a, a very important one. Especially if it goes violent, because then, then we just really have to be there to make sure that that doesn't get out of hand. What is, what is, is to pray constantly that we, first, this is what Swami said with the St. Francis prayer, that we can be an instrument of divine light and that those, that all those, and to project toward all those who are guiding the world at this point, that they also open their hearts and receive true intuition from the masters. You can pray specifically to Babaji to really keep a watchful eye on the scene. You know, whatever, whatever means something to you, but just constantly 
hold all those figures really in the light and just see divine power coming into them and in our own lives someone in this class was just remarking about a little something that had seemed like a big deal to her before last week now doesn't seem like a very big deal in terms of personal trials that you have to face and that too is that's a very spiritual response which is to say and that's one of the things that's happening everybody's getting their priorities lined up as I said in some sermon or some speech the luxury of being negative is gone (laughs) we just don't have it anymore because we can't afford to be putting any negative force out in this world we have to just put out a positive one and that means all our little own interactions too you know we just don't want to be on the side tipping the balance we want to be on the side tipping the light if there's a whole lot of light everywhere then everybody it's easier to see knowing that's really quite a relief it makes things so much simpler in your everyday activities and your interplay with other people no you can't fool around anymore yeah Um, so it's very simple now yeah it is very simple and also the uh let's see what the other part is you know it isn't our job to actually make those decisions at ananda we've always sort of i mean the the microcosm teaches the macrocosm it's at ananda we we often you know somebody will be engaged in doing something and other people have all opinions about how it ought to be done but we sort of have a system which is well you know if it's if it's your karma to be responsible for it we try to respect a person's right to run their story the way they need to you know even though somebody else could interfere and somebody else could make it happen but no it's your karma you have a right to run this you know even if it impacts the rest of us and because that's the respectful appropriate way to respond and none of us really have to make these decisions now we just it's not our responsibility we can have opinions but it's really not ours but we can have we have a relation a very powerful relationship to it so it's god's responsibility really and and part of our job is to have a tremendous faith in god that what is happening is in god's hands and there were more people at church on sunday than we ever have except for easter or christmas and i almost wanted to say guys you might not like it but it's working look you're all here where have you been you know for these last few years you've been spacing around sleeping in eating bagels and now you're here you know and what brought you here you know what brought you here is a terrorist attack on america and the uh, the thing in palo alto which i was totally misinformed i thought it was ministers kind of standing around together praying there were hundreds of people it was a huge event and there were hundreds of people gathered in the square there whole city was gathered there i mean not the whole city but a huge number of people huge gigantic event never you know they don't come out like that it's working everybody standing together and thinking about god and that's all god wants once we like get that there's no other problem that's what all our personal tests are about it's a national test it's national karma right now it's the karma of the nation is that we've got our priorities mixed up and so our you know our fanny has caught fire sometimes you hear me say that we have to move toward the light if we move steadily toward the light we're fine but if we try to stop our fanny catches fire and then we start running right so the, the karma of the nation i don't mean to be flippant but that's what's happening our fanny is catching fire and we're starting to move toward the light because we're in pain right but but the wonderful thing is that people are getting it just like that that where do we have to move we have to move toward the light we drop the star spangled banner and we're asking god shed your grace on us you know we just it, it, nobody i don't know if somebody said it or not but they just dropped it they just changed it it's fabulous so once we get it it'll be over yes 
Mm-hmm. You mean the whole... Mm-hmm. Right. Really, isn't that something? Boy, that's something, isn't it? Huh. Mm-hmm. Her daughter's going to college and she was saying, this is not a test. <laughs> Two weeks ago it was, today it's not. <laughs> you know. it's, a, it's a very... Huh. It's an interesting time. So here we are. Let's just do our part. You know, you also have to understand that most people in the world do not think deeply. Swami always said this to me years ago and I always thought it was such a snooty remark but I've really come to appreciate it. Most people do not think deeply. They look for someone who has thought deeply and resonate with their ideas and then move. And Yogananda has thought very deeply. Swami Kriyananda has thought very deeply. That's why we've been passing out to you, know, the things that Swami's writing. And, you know, we just need to tune into that and have the self-honesty to um, go where the light is leading us and then gradually we'll get deeper into it too. Very often, very often in our own tests, we don't know where we're going. I'll, I'll, just relating even to this chapter, Babaji's out in the mountains. He feels strangely drawn to these hills. Here's a voice calling his name. He just kind of wanders around, you know, responding to it. Of course, he's, it's a voice calling his name, so he's responding to it. But he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know where it's leading him. He just hears the voice calling him, so he moves. He doesn't stop and say, before I take another step, tell me what's at the other end and why do you want to see me? Who are you and what do you want? And, uh, of course, it sounds ridiculous, but very often we just find ourselves in positions in our lives where we really have no idea where it's going. We just know that this is the next step. And so that's exactly what you were saying. We don't always know what's happening. And, and I know that uh, President and Colin Powell and the others, they don't know exactly what they're doing, but if we can keep them in light sufficiently that... that they can take their next steps according to Babaji whispering in their ear Babaji and Christ are responsible for this planet Master said that these hard times are for the spiritual development of all souls who have chosen to incarnate at this point so we, we I mean this is too massive to be uh, an accident this just didn't leak through you know this is really what's happening so we just want to be part of the plan we don't want to go with the plan and uh, the details are not that important to us that's what I was trying to say when I was saying it's not really I mean unless you feel really personally called which you may I don't want to say somebody may feel really personally called to feel that they need to write letters and relate to real specific events but but someone like myself I don't feel that the specific that they the specifics that they decide are really my issue I don't want to study the terrain and make decisions like that I just want to be in tune with the sense of the cosmic flow and be on the side of the, that power, whatever it is, whether they decide to do something, to do nothing, I just don't know at this point what it is. Anyway, you may get... Anyway, I just had to say that because I spent the last hour writing this letter that was there, it was all in my head. Okay, anything else? Comments or thoughts? Yes, sure. Oh, he wrote enormously about those events, constantly. It's just that that's all in the old magazines primarily. It's and uh, um, there's certain websites where you can find old SRF magazines. I actually should find uh, Shivani found a Holger found a site. If you write Holger in Assisi, 
There's a site where you can find all the old SRF magazines, and you look up all those years, it's continuous. In fact, this is completely off the subject, but someone told me who'd looked at an old SRF magazine at the time when the King of England abdicated to Mary Wallace Simpson, and she said, Master took Wallace Simpson's side, and he said, I have to call her and ask her for this article. He said, look at this woman. She was married twice before, but they were not true marriages because it wasn't true love. And she held out for true love, and now she's found it. She should be held up as an example to all American women. <laughs> I mean, isn't, you know, what a radical position. That's not what the little sanitized version would tell you. But at the time, at the time, he often commented about current events when Mary Semple McPherson was, um, she was the Foursquare Gospel preacher, and she had a huge following in Los Angeles. She was enormous, and then she disappeared for a week. And everyone believed she'd gone off on a liaison with some man. She claimed she'd been kidnapped. It was a very peculiar sort of thing. It was a huge scandal at the time as to whether she'd actually had this immoral uh, event with this man or whether she had, in fact, been kidnapped. And Master commented on it. He wrote editorials in his magazine. I mean, he, he was engaged, just like Swami. You know. Well, I think... Yeah, he listened to the news. But, I mean... You know, I said to Swamiji once, I said, if you do it, it's probably, I said to Swamiji, I said, if you do it, it's probably what Master did, isn't it? He said, yes. I said, and if it's not your way, it probably wasn't Master's way. He says, yes. I mean, what did Swami do? He's written us all these letters, and he's always commenting about what's going on. When there was an earthquake in Italy, we have fundraising events. Of course Master was engaged in everything. It's just, uh, I don't know, SRF has a real funny idea of what they should share with us so they don't share it. And the Depression, too. He wrote all these, all these things about... In fact, he, I mean, one of his famous remarks is, if the world won't... If, the, if I was out of work and I couldn't find a job, I would shake the universe until it gave me a job! You know, and he wrote that right in the middle of the Depression. <laughs> so, yeah. But in fact, it would be very worthwhile to look up all what he said about war at this time. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Anything else? I mean, is William the Conqueror a master specifically led many men into death. Do you know? He led them into battle so that they could be killed. Probably with his own hands he killed people. And it's, it's shocking. You don't want to think about it, but there it is. You have to start with reality and then work back to what you're going to think rather than starting with your dream and trying to impose it on reality. This is not, this is not an easy teaching. The disciples said one to another, this is a hard teaching. <laughs> Okay. At the same time, Master was perfectly willing to marry, make, uh, well, I shouldn't say perfectly, but is this correct? No, I started to say he married people to get them out of the army, but he married people, he made false marriages to get them out of the immigration problems. I think he did some things to keep people out of the army, too, because I don't think he wanted his monks to go out and shoot people, because that would be going backwards for them. Well, I didn't say that, but I wouldn't be at all surprised. He would look at you and say, you should go to Korea. It's your karma to go to Korea. But others, he would say, you shouldn't go. You shouldn't do that. It's not for you. So it's Because part of it is the fact that there are genuine kshatriyas who have just risen to the point where they're willing to die for their country. Are you going to deny them that opportunity? Because you don't? It's not for you to do? That's why, that's why I, on Sunday, was talking about you have to take into account the nature of this planet. I got such a funny note from Karen Gamow, who 
you know, thinks she she critical she she thinks analytically while things are happening. And she we had this whole room full of people. Sometimes she gets real nervous that I'm going to blow it, you know. <laughs> and of course, sometimes I do. So it's not like she like her fears are completely ungrounded. So. She, and because she does all the promotions, she sees there's 200 people in here, and I start out talking about UFOs. And, and she's sweating bullets, you know, like, oh God, she's not going to just come a copper today of all days. You know? So she was honest enough to write me a little note about how nervous she was, and then how amazingly I brought it all back together. God brought it all back together. All I knew was that I was supposed to start with UFOs. I didn't know where I was going. And... Uh, but I just realized we have to take into account the nature of the planet. Otherwise, the rules are different. There are real kshatriyas. We have to let them do it. They came here to have the courage to die for their country. It's not fair to them to stop them. But you would have to say that too about the men who Yes, you do, unfortunately. It's not that, but, but um, they need... But that gets confusing because you... But our job is to resist it, and their job is to be resisted because they're listening to the wrong side. They were sent to this planet to do it because it was their karma to do it, but it's not their good karma to do it. It's their bad karma to do it, but nonetheless it's a cycle they're going to have to run through, clearly, because here they are running through it. Does that make sense? It doesn't make it okay. Not that, not, not, now, see, when I say it's some men's destiny to die for their country, yeah, these men are on their way up. I mean, they're on their way through, they're working their way through something the ones who are the terrorists, but you have, but you still, part of the project is to develop the discernment between good and evil. And, and if you're powerfully drawn to a wrong cause, you have to incarnate to be drawn to the wrong cause so you can understand what a misery-producing decision that was. And this is a planet in which there are people who are powerfully drawn to the wrong cause. And, and it's our job to discern what that wrong cause is and to respond appropriately. To say it's in the divine plan for them to do it does not mean that it's good for them or for anybody else. It just means that we can't say that God didn't know it was going to happen. Demons have been allowed to incarnate here because a whole age needs to be destroyed. So there's people out there who are real evil, bad people. And in the great scheme of things, they say, ah, oh, planet Earth, a good place for you right now because you get to be really evil and mean and help bring down that whole culture. And then we'll send a bunch of good people down and they'll get to learn how to counter that evil and you'll get terrible karma for doing it and then you'll suffer and then gradually you'll get better. I mean, it's, I, I don't mean to be cavalier, but that's how the whole program works. And if we don't want to be on a planet where such awful people are, we just have to get better. Or recognize that we're here to serve. That we're not necessarily here out of punishment, but it, it was up there in the astral world. Someone said, ah, planet Earth is going to transition from Kali to Dwapara. It's going to be a big mess. They need some people who can hold to the light. Who's willing? <laughs> oh, oh Lord, not again. <laughs> or Swamiji said, I'm going. And we said, oh, all right. <laughs> which is how I think a lot of us did it. Master said, I'm going. Swami said, then I'll go with you, sir. Then we said, well, if you're going, I guess we have to go. And then here we all are, and now it's happening. It's a job. Isn't that much more fun to think of it, though?
Many of Swamiji's life readings and astrological readings basically said he was born to help take the planet through this hard time. That was, that was why he came, was to take the planet through this time. And now whether he'll be a public figure or a behind-the-scenes figure, I don't know. But, you know. but look what he's created in all of us. Here. And when, you know, sometimes people, when I say he, I mean master, but master acting through Swami because master's not in his body, he had to inspire somebody. So, okay. I said I wouldn't. Extremely active and responsible. And that's what we need. I mean, it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's absolutely the truth. Look, he's already done it. The ripples, the stone has been thrown into the, into the pond and the ripples and ripples and ripples and ripples and ripples. Okay, should we talk about the materializing of palace in the Himalayas? I mean, this is the most important issue that we're talking about. But look, shall we do the palace in the Himalayas? Is that okay? I was the one who took this over. I happen to have worked a lot with this chapter working on the SRF website because this is the, such an important chapter about the transmittal of Kriya. And SRF made a certain astonishing changes in this chapter in the conversation between Lahiri and Babaji. So I've sort of, I've, I've really immersed myself in this chapter repeatedly. Um, but uh, there, there's just like, I, I was so struck, I'm sure we all are every once in a while, by just the vividness with which Yogananda can tell these stories. You know, Master just tells you this story and you have and, it, and also he puts it all in you'll hear his words, Kabel Ananda told him the story repeatedly, you can see this picture of the young disciple saying to his Sanskrit tutor, Kabel Ananda was his Sanskrit tutor, that his father had brought in to sort of ground master so he wouldn't keep running away to the Himalayas and because Lahiri Mahashaya's disciples were all guided because Lahiri didn't want any public display of his mission the disciples didn't even know who they were. And so Master's father didn't even know that this was a guru bhai that he'd, he'd hired or what a, a great saint he was necessarily. But for, for Master it was this constant fanning of the very flames that his father had hoped to cool off. So you can sort of see them sitting there together and the, you know, the textbooks are in front of him and Master figures out one more way to keep them from having to study this thing he wasn't interested in by having Cable and Nanda tell him again this incredible story. And then he says about how Sri Yukteswar told him the same story in substantially the same words. So, you know, this is just like the real legend of how Lahiri Mahashaya came in contact again with Babaji and just the extraordinary importance of this, this uh, thing that happened. In many ways, this is, this is the beginning. You, you have all these different points of just total significance of the beginning. But um, we have to appreciate this was the beginning of Dwapara Yuga to a large extent. When, when times on the planet, since we're talking about the planet, you know, through this period of Kali Yuga when man's consciousness is very gross on a planetary sense. Of course, Christ was born at virtually almost the lowest point of consciousness on this planet. So you have the individual drama of souls 
incarnating wherever they need to incarnate in order to work out their own karma and go toward God realization and the capacity for anybody to be fully self-realized no matter what the circumstances around them that's the individual karmic drama I used to call this personal and planetary evolution I would give a class on this and that's what I called it personal evolution takes place against the backdrop of planetary evolution and just as individuals have karma groups have karma nations have karma planets have karma and this great it's a very orderly universe that acts itself out so planet earth is acting out its karma and it becomes again as I was saying on Sunday all through Kali Yuga it becomes a place where matter is very very dense and it's very hard to penetrate and understand and every the, the mass consciousness is that matter is reality and as and during you know as we went down 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 into the dark ages all of spirituality had to sort of be pulled back from a general understanding because consciousness was just too gross there was no capacity to understand it there was no interest and there was in fact the potential for it to be abused if people were, were if people who were not ready were given access to the kind of power that spiritual um, learning can give you it would have been used for evil so it was pulled back as a protective measure also to and it would also be diluted and distorted so the, those who really understood hid it away it went into the monasteries and it went into the Himalayas even when Jesus was born the increasing accepted understanding is that he was part of an Essene community and certain books which are uh, somewhat intuitively written and somewhat written from uh, less well-known scriptures and scrolls and so on speak of the Essenes as being a remnant of, of a much more advanced understanding of spirituality that had of necessity had to become secret because the mass consciousness both misunderstood and distrusted and to a certain extent persecuted because that kind of purity and that kind of elevated understanding was seen as a threat by grosser individuals I mean in fact Jesus was finally crucified but the Essenes according to the Essene tradition and I've read several books that have that seem valid whether they are or not I don't know and they talk about the Essenes talk about that they were they they were the guardians of a tradition that clearly came from higher age you have to understand when you're in a descending age what you watch is you watch everything getting grosser and grosser around you and you watch fewer and fewer people being attuned or, or being capable of understanding subtle truths because there just aren't as many of them it's not a planet for that purpose but a few guardians are left you know in the monasteries they kept the scriptures alive and they kept a great deal of literature alive through the dark ages by copying manuscripts and the Essenes kept certain traditions alive and were the cradle for the birth of Jesus and in the Himalayas the traditions of India were kept alive Yogananda said that in Kali Yuga descending the, the consciousness of man is not capable of maintaining an awareness and an understanding of the physical world and the spiritual world simultaneously and, the, and it was split between East and West that the East would maintain through Kali Yuga an understanding of spiritual truth and the West would maintain an understanding of how to function in the physical world so we became very efficient and capable and not very spiritually conscious and the East got India really got sort of very poor but never lost touch with the with the true teaching and in fact um, 
the two Indian epics, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, were written by sage Vyasa because he saw that Kali Yuga was coming. And he realized that more subtle expressions of the teachings would just be lost. But these epic stories of these great masters would keep the teaching alive. And that is precisely what happened. And Yogananda himself refers to it in this book. I, how, he said he talks about his bittersweet introduction and acquaintanceship with the Ramayana and the Mahabharata because his mother would summon appropriate examples from those stories whenever discipline was necessary. But it really was the, the oral tradition often passed down through the women of those epics that kept the culture intact. And that was Bias's inspiration. That's why he wrote those stories that they would carry through. It's very fascinating, isn't it? But then, now that we're coming out and because of our astronomical relationship to the actual center, the energy center from which the, this planet is supported, makes the, the flow of energy onto this planet more dynamic and therefore there's more consciousness capable. We go in a, an elliptical orbit. This is an astronomical fact, which astronomers are just beginning to figure out, that we are, we're closer and farther away from the energy center that, uh, that, that uh, magnetizes this planet we live on. So Master said, now that the age is rising, East and West can come back together because mankind is able to maintain an awareness of both the physical and the spiritual world together. So the necessity to completely withdraw in order to be spiritual is not, is not like it was. And that's why you see this gradual, just almost dying out of Western monasteries. And that's why we're in this church. They don't tell you that. The reason the Catholics didn't keep this I mean, why would they not keep it? They don't have enough priests. They just don't have enough priests to run their churches. And they can't, they can't maintain them without priests because of the way they uh, have set it up and they won't ordain women and uh, they won't ordain lay people and they just they can't keep enough priests. They don't like to publicize that. So that's why they sold it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. But uh, otherwise, they just hold on to it. I mean, they have a very long rhythm about these things. Right? But they couldn't run it at all. Because it's not, but people are leaving that lifestyle not out of disillusionment with spirituality, but out of a sense of greater fervor that they feel cannot be fulfilled there. Now, this little story of Lahiri Mahashaya is, is exactly in keeping with all of that. Now it can come down out of the mountains. And so Lahiri is, you know, mystically drawn up and he meets Babaji from his past lives and you just have this, I mean, so many of us, and I presume it's many of you too, I don't really know for sure, but have just such a resonance with that, that simple lifestyle. You know, that being in the cave with here's your blanket, here's your water bowl, and that's all you ever had. Partly, I guess, because I started my spiritual life in this incarnation at Ananda village uh, when it had just barely begun. And, and we lived for a number of years. I lived for a number of years, maybe eight or nine years, um, in, in extremely humble circumstances, um, with uh, no, no electricity or and in, in a rural atmosphere. And it was just such a sense of uh, that spirit of, you don't need anything, really. You just need your spiritual inspiration in a little tiny bit. I always drew the line that I had to have heat. 
I couldn't quite make it. I mean, I had to have food. I had to have food and heat, and I had to be dry. I couldn't handle it if it leaked, right? (laughs) But not much more than that. And there was such a, uh, just a profound sense. Of course, I was 25 years old. A lot you can do a lot when you're younger, and no responsibilities. But um, for anyone else. So you have this picture of Lahiri just being drawn back, and here's your cave, here's your little blanket, here's your, your water pot, I've kept it polished for you. And it's such an a extraordinary picture of so many things, not the least of which is this um, power between the guru and the disciple. You know, that, and Babaji says, I watched you as a little child when you were on the beach meditating. I've never lost track of you. Through all of this time and space, you were always my child. Yogananda has written in other places, you know, who, uh, who can promise you that kind of love except the guru? And, he, and there's a, a very, I say famous, because it's well known in our little circle, um, lecture that uh, Yogananda gave, and he, he mocks, he talks about how, you know, the lovers walk on the beach and under the full moon pledge their eternal love for one another and then you know death comes and their bones lie rotting and where is their oath you know in other words what power do they really have to pledge for all eternity he said they don't have the consciousness to pledge that and he, he, it's very mocking on his part but but the point being is that only the guru has that real power or only one of divine realization now of course that's also false because we really do love one another and meet each other lifetime after lifetime but the point he was trying to make is there are the, the, the master never loses contact with you. And so we have that. That's one of the things that's illustrated here is what uh, the relationship between the guru and the disciple really is. Now bear in mind, of course, you don't get that merely by declaring yourself a disciple. You get that by receiving him. Because it, it's, you, you can't presume that merely because I declare myself your disciple that the bond is really formed. You can't, you can't command the master like that. But if you really dedicate your heart to it and live to your, the very best of your ability and don't become too paranoid when I say that, but if you really are sincere in this, then the masters are with you. And... This drama of Lahiri Mahashaya had to play it out um, for all of us so we would see it. And you know, Babaji says later, it was no accident that you did not discover this until you were already established with your modest little home and your family and your little job and all of that. Because that is the picture of the future that is really required here. But of course, the whole, um, the whole initiation it's just so dramatic. You know, you're up there in this uh, barren hillside. And, but Babaji was also, uh, as, as Swami put it, you know, he was just very practical. And he sort of says to Lahiri, you need purification. Here, drink this oil. Swami talks about that when he created the purification ceremony that we do every Sunday. He pointed out that even Lahiri Mahashaya needed purification that, you know, a little bit of maya is always with us. Even, uh, even the avatar, because he'd incarnated and had to live out, Babaji had to give him this oil to sort of just take away from his consciousness any taint that he, that had any dust. It's a very interesting statement. It also, again, everything in here is a teaching. It's also telling us that 
we have to recognize that there's just an influence on us of having accepted physical bodies and being caught in this world, there's an influence. And in a place called Ananda, there's a couple of pages in there that are exceedingly interesting. These have to do with our raising our hands when volunteers were needed. Swamiji writes in there about how exceedingly uncongenial the West is um, at this time for devotees. And that when Master came here to, to do this and people had to come with him, it was a, a, a challenge. And, and Swami remarks that um, many disciples didn't, weren't able to meet it because it's so um, materialistic and so sensual and uh, there's just so much in this culture that just tempts you away from spirituality. Whereas in the culture of India, which I think for many of us, whether you like curry or feel drawn to India or not, um, is really our more natural home in the sense that it's the culture that resonates with our own true understanding of what life should be. It's not about Hinduism and it's not about the superficial aspect of it. But the, the culture of India is a spiritually based culture, the whole culture. Every holiday is a spiritual holiday. There are no holidays that aren't based on the scriptures or the celebration of this event in the Ramayana or this particular expression of Divine Mother. The whole country, everybody, you know, the government on down and all the ordinary people. One of the most startling things when you go to India is that taxi drivers are devotees. And you, you know, in this country you have this orientation that this is a minority movement among a certain intellectual and economic elite. And the taxi drivers, generally speaking, although there's Bob Hume here, <laughs> I just realized. But Bob is, I'm sure, rare among his colleagues, you know. And even Bob doesn't have an altar, you know, right on his taxi, a big altar right on his taxi with incense, and he doesn't probably hang a garland over the outside, you know, that he's gone to the temple to get in the morning, like all the taxi drivers do in, in India, because it's just assumed. It's not a question of you have to be educated in order to find it. It's just assumed that's the orientation of the culture. And in such a culture, it's not that hard to hold on to your sense of spirituality because from the beginning to the end, it's there. I was uh, uh, The whole culture of India was defined to me by, by this when we were there the first time. We were driving behind a huge dump truck, just a gigantic dump truck. First of all, the name, the company that made the truck was the Jai Durga Company. Victory to Divine Mother, that was the name of the, the company that made it, like General Motors, Ford, it was the Jai Durga Taxi Company. Huge, ugly truck. It had this wonderful garland on the front, you know, and on the, the dashboard there was images of the deity and little incense burning. I mean, these are the taxi drivers, right? And uh, then our bus comes up behind it and we honk our horn because that's how we tell them that we're back there and that the truck has to move off of the only actual paved part, which is just a single lane virtually over, so we can go by. And the truck driver is, can see the road in front, and we can't, so he signals us. And this beautiful, delicate brown hand comes out of the window of this big truck and goes like this. <laughs> and it was just like in America, you'd never see it. <laughs> just the whole consciousness of it was just so different, you know? I'll never forget that. I was so struck by it. But, uh, uh, let's see. Oh, but Swami was saying in the path, in the place called Ananda, that we sort of took this job on 
and it's a little bit of a tough job. And that's why when he made the purification ceremony, he was saying even Lahiri was tainted by his association. And if Lahiri needed it, then we certainly need it. And the purification, purification is just the right word because you're not trying to create something that isn't there. You're just trying to, to keep away, you know, take, take away from you that which is not you, which has come into the picture. You just want to get rid of everything that isn't. It's, a very, it's much more subtle than, um, I'm a sinner, I need to be forgiven. It's, I'm a saint, I just need to have a little bit of the impurities washed off of me. You know, do what you can. And then we, we, we create that purification by accepting the Master in our heart and letting him be in charge. That's what purifies us, is to let go of the ego. So that whole ceremony came out of this. I mean, this was, uh, it, didn't come, it didn't come out of here exactly, but it was related to this. Swami, when he wrote it specifically, guided us to refer to this particular one sentence there, where he drinks this oil and then goes out and lies on the rocks and the uh, river laps over him and he's just up there in the mountains. And it's just such a vivid scene of, uh, you know, being reunited. And of course, Lahiri thought it was all over. His family, his job as an accountant, his children, I mean, what difference did any of it make in the context? And it was just this assumption that that's where he would stay. It's also just interesting that that was a very natural assumption, that he would just walk away from all of that. It's not in any way because the ordinary person can be irresponsible in that way, but when a higher duty calls, the lesser duty ceases to be your dharma. It ceases to be the action that will take you to God. That's what I was sort of saying about when we were talking about the soldiers. You know, for some of Master's monks, it would be to go backwards to be a soldier. For others, it would be appropriate for them to be a soldier. They have to uh, uh, increase their energy or their awareness or their courage or whatever it was. Um, I was just remembering that. Remember in the path when uh, somebody came to Master and asked him to lead a revolution in India and he refused, but encouraged those men to do it anyway and they ended up being captured and executed. Swami said, well, why did you encourage them to do that? He said, well, it was their karma. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it was, it was right for them to do it. That's what they were born to do. How could I stop them? You have to bear in mind that everybody dies eventually anyway. You know, duh. But really, you have to remember that. Swami said it just very simply. He says, we'll all die eventually. Let's die with honor. So it's a casual attitude, but that's the attitude that the saints have because that's how they see it. It's sort of like saying, don't leave the room, don't leave the room. Whatever you do, don't leave the room. Well, I have to leave the room. You know, I have to go out there. That's just what I have to do. It's, it's, it's lunatic to say, you can't leave the room. Of course you have to leave the room. You can't just stay here for the rest of our lives. That's sort of how we feel. Don't leave the planet, don't leave the planet. That doesn't mean it's not important to protect your life. But it's, you have to stand back. That's how generals feel. You know, the generals just have to, they get into a very, it's a funny mindset that you kind of capture every once in a while. They just, they're looking at the horizon and they're just doing what's needed. If you're not in it, you can't imagine it, but if you're in it, you just can see that you, human life is part of the process. It's not, you only live another 50 years anyway. It's not really such a big thing. In the, in the grand scope of things. We were born and died so many times. It's all, it's, that's one of the things, too. It's all about death, because death is all about the purpose of life. 
so uh, Lahiri is just up there and thinks he's never coming back. And then Babaji does this incredible thing, materializing this palace. And Swamiji writes later that in here it says it was a subconscious desire of Lahiri's. Swamiji says that really isn't exactly how Master explained it. Master put it more that it was a memory of, of Lahiri's. And that he says because he was uh, King Janaka in a previous life. And King Janaka is a great sage of India who was both a saint and a king and the, the incarnation of enormous wealth. Um, he was enormously wealthy and also very saintly. And so this palace was, um, was a memory of Lahiri's previous incarnation as this great king. And, and when you think of it like that, and he talks about the walls were gold and the pictures were encrusted with jewels, and you know, the tradition of India, the wealth of India was legendary. And the reason the British, the reason Columbus was seeking India, the reason the British took, came over to India, all the, the export, exportation was from India. I mean, it was, it was fabulously wealthy. And, you know, very early travelers would talk about the fabulous wealth of this country. But what happened was England came over and took it over, and uh, England gradually became the richest nation in the world, and India became the poorest. What a coincidence. Right, and it was in the divine plan that that happened. But so this fabulous wealth that they speak of was from the age in which spirit and matter were in harmony. And if spirit and matter are in harmony, wealth abundance flows naturally. Right now, um, spirit and matter are out of harmony, and greed, um, greed has become the definition. You know that the level of. Um, overindulgence and opulence and uh, it's just so out of hand it's so out of proportion that that's among the reasons why all this is happening because it's just it, it's not wealth it's uh, um, it's abuse that's taking place and also just the wealth being created at, at, the, at the expense of harmony with natural law and harmony with the natural forces and so it's a kind of wealth that is a uh, not in, not in keeping with the forces that keep the world in balance. And that's also why it's, it's getting ripped away from us. But this story also tells us that it's not inherently not right, because here Babaji creates this palace. And he wouldn't create it if, it if there was something inherently sinful about it. Do you see what I mean? So it also raises just a very interesting question as to where, what all that balance point is. You know, I just started this part of the class so late, maybe we should take a little bit of break. Why don't we take a few minutes? Not too long. Just take five minutes and stretch and rest a little. I see I'll be looking just a little rest. A little bit more is... Oh, I was talking about the, the, the palace and just the... Uh, oh, I was talking about wealth and all of that, which is it just... I mean, I was just reflecting on this this afternoon. Of all things for uh, Babaji to create, you know, you would think that the last thing he would create would be something so luxurious... And they describe it in such incredible detail. Babaji sitting on a, th- a gold, a gold jewel-encrusted throne, and and so you also get this picture that there's no, there's no aversion to this. There's just an acceptance. It's all just uh, matter held together by the will of the mind. It's all just a dream. It's it's partly the, um, the whole Kali Yuga separation, between spirit and matter, where where the renunciates 
had to go into this you know, great push, uh, pushing all of the material world away, had to go into this extremely strict form of poverty and all of that in order to feel spiritual. You just couldn't associate with the material world to feel spiritual. But in the golden ages of India, there was no such separation. There was just kind of an ease. It's all the same reality. You did have the renunciates, the yogis who walk away from everything and live in the Himalayas, but there wasn't the need among spiritual people to repudiate it with such force. You understand? So we're moving out of that age and we have to find that balance point. Right now, in the West, we've gone way over to the other side. You know, and, and there's just so much greed and so much disharmony that we have to come back into something more natural. But, but Master um, followed the path of simplicity. And, and he made things beautiful. You know, he, put, he put out a great deal of energy to make things beautiful. Sri Yukteswar did not. When, when Yogananda wanted to fix up Sri Yukteswar's ashram and buy him a new rug, Sri Yukteswar just said, that's your world, like this. He said, my meditation mat is fine. And, and really, you really were looking at a, a dusty, falling down building. But he didn't care. His corner of it was fine. It didn't matter. But Yogananda had this mission to, to bring about this new change. And so he bought Mount Washington and made the grounds beautiful and he... I got the lake shrine and started making it beautiful. I mean, nothing was done on the scale that SRF now does it because they've moved a little bit, in, at least from my own mind, a little bit from simplicity to a little bit of luxury. You know, the, wall, the choice of wallpapers and things like that. But even uh, Yogananda, even Kriyananda, I mean, he built the crystal hermitage. He used his family's inheritance to build the crystal hermitage and he made it beautiful in a simple way. But it's still, it's very beautiful. And he, when he was traveling around the world, he bought furniture and had it all shipped back and you know just really put out a lot of energy to make a beautiful environment and then here Babaji and Lahiri Mahashaya who why would they care but Babaji makes a palace for Lahiri and sits on a golden throne it's just it's very interesting but the detachment is there and then poof it's gone and they're just all sitting on the ground again a very uh, odd story on a certain level and, and many levels of it that who knows what they really mean. I have to speak for a moment when I, um, many of you have heard me say this, but I'll put it in this context because it's so relevant. When I first came to Ananda, uh, I, shortly after I, I came there, the monastic order at Ananda started, and we had a, about an eight or nine year period, and then it more or less dissolved. Um, it didn't more or less dissolve, but it more dissolved. It dissolved because we all got married, including Swami. It just sort of went away. Um, but we lived a very, as I was saying at the beginning, a very renunciate lifestyle, physically. And it was also, it was a very important... All of those young renunciates is what built the community because we really just needed almost nothing to live. I got $50 a month, and that was really all I needed. And, and we just didn't have to put any energy into doing anything for ourselves. We just would put up a little hut or a little trailer that we could live in, and that was 100%. You never thought about it after that. And so that all the energy could go toward building what we needed to do. And that, that energy was required to get it off the ground, and that example of renunciation was required to set the tone. And it was a very important period that we went through. Speaking for myself personally, I had a lot of, uh, a certain number of samskars of that kind of a lifestyle. 
And, and I also realized when I got married and had to transition into something else that I also had a strong association in my mind with the fact that if I am poor, I am spiritual. You know, it was like that thought that as long as I'm away from all of that stuff, that must mean I'm spiritual. And when I married David, he does not have those, those he doesn't have the same uh, influence on his consciousness. Certainly all of us have lived everything in the past, but he didn't have that influence. He just looked, he, he, looked, he has always looked at everything and seen it as a continuous flow. He just sees it's just energy, whatever form it takes. You know, whether it's a little hut over here or a beautiful home over here, it's just energy. You just keep putting out energy and it manifests in all sorts of ways. You know, that's his great ability as an entrepreneur is he just understands energy. And we sort of came into conflict because I could only accept certain kinds of energy as spiritual. And he could not understand how I could draw the line. It just didn't make any sense to him. And it really came to a head when, we, when Swami Kriyananda basically told us to build a little house which is now the Crystal Hermitage guest house, which some of you may have stayed in from time to time. It was a little cabin that was already there. Um, for those of you who've ever stayed there, it's a little room off the main room and the underneath part was there, very rough form. I mean, it didn't look anything like it looked like. But Swami wanted us to move into it, and it was impossible for us to live in. I mean, I could live alone in that, but I walked in and David's aura just filled the whole space and I was kind of pressed up against the wall and I just didn't see how we could do it. Well, Swami said, why don't you just build a house there? which seems such a natural thought now, but it wasn't natural at the time. It was, it was just quite a... It was also his way of getting me out to teach because I said, well, how would we pay for it? He said, well, you could go out and teach and then you could pay for it. And it worked. But uh, uh, we started building that and I found this great fear inside me growing because David has a very fine sense of aesthetics. I did not at that time. I've developed it. And he wanted to make it nice. I mean, it seemed kind of stupid to him not to make it nice if you're going to build it. I don't mean luxurious, I just mean nice. You know, build it harmoniously, build it with nice materials, just build it nicely. And I, I couldn't relate to it because I realized it frightened me. It made me feel that if I have a house, I won't be a spiritual person anymore. I mean, it, was, it wasn't as direct to that, but it, it was growing. So... Finally, David said the famous words to me, famous because I've repeated them in so many classes. He said, if you're not going to help, why don't you at least get out of the way? <laughs> because I was just obstructing his efforts to do it well. Because the, the second level of, well, if I'm going to do it, at least I'll do it badly, and that will protect me. You know, I'll, I'll demonstrate my detachment by, by building an ugly house. It was all very confused in my head. And uh, it was a very important lesson for me because I said to myself, you know, Asha, either you're spiritual or not. You can't have the, the environment you're living in make you spiritual. You have to be a little bit more real than that. And also, I mean, it was Swami was pushing us to do it, so it was the right thing to do. But that's sort of, there's something about that in this whole chapter because Babaji did not have to initiate him in a golden palace. It's, it, there's this, this strange, like, coming together of enormous material wealth and the most significant event of our age, which is Kriya Yoga coming out of the Himalayas. And then the immortal words between Lahiri and uh, Babaji, where Babaji just gives the normal instruction. Give this to anyone who's willing to renounce everything. If they're willing to renounce everything for God, then they're worthy to have this. 
And there he says, oh, but the poor saps down there, most of them can't do it. If we make this so hard for them, you know, it's not going to help anybody. You know, be it so, as the divine has spoken through you. And that, of course, it's all a leela that they acted out like that. But that was really it. It was like, but you can't withhold it from all those sincere people. And who are the, all those sincere people? That's us. I mean, you know, that moment between Babaji and Lahiri, when the ancient restrictions were relaxed, were wiped away, in fact, um, well, that was our moment. Because otherwise, none of us would qualify. We'd still be just here chanting. Because doing the Hong Sa technique, we would not have Kriya. Because we wouldn't have qualified. So it's, it's an amazing story. And is, and is the beginning because Kriya Yoga, as is written elsewhere in this uh, volume, Kriya Yoga is the antidote to delusion. Somewhere they quote Shankaracharya, somewhere in this book. Shankaracharya is saying that you can't overcome delusion through ritual because ritual is not the antidote of delusion. The antidote of maya is direct perception of reality, right? And mere external forms, no matter how oriented they're supposed to be toward God, can't actually counter the, the entrapment of maya. The only thing that can counter it is for if, if we internally, within our own consciousness, change our level of consciousness and see through it. So that's Kriya is the antidote to Maya. And so it doesn't matter where we live as long as we're, we have the antidote in place. And that's where Babaji says, you know, even householders can make great progress. Even people who live in the world can make great progress if they just gradually, through Kriya, change their inner awareness. And that's the, um, the whole story of our lives, is the opportunity to do that. And it just happened right here. So, you know, every day you have to fall at Lahiri's feet and say, thank you so much for speaking up on our behalf. <laughs> Did you have a question? It's not the only one that knows this. Yeah, right. It really validated it for me in an external way. Yeah. It's very, I'm, I'm, I didn't know that. That's very valid. It is valid. That's how, I mean, of course, if you go to any environment where people are doing yoga almost on any level or any kind of relatively conscious group and say, how many have read Autobiography of Yoga? Everybody raised their hand. How many are disciples or follow or do kriyas? Of course, a much smaller number. But everybody knows. He's the avatar for the age. You know, he was the Western avatar. That's fabulous. That's exactly right. So, um, then you just one last part. You have this little last part where Babaji, where Babaji tells Lahiri, I'll come whenever you call me. And the first thing that Lahiri does is misuse the privilege. <laughs> it's just so charming. It's just so charmingly human, and Babaji has to say, well, from now on, I'm not going to come quite so easily. But then, ba then Lahiri says, but, you know, with honesty, but I did it for these people, I wanted them to believe. And, and then Babaji says, like a friend, well, I don't want your word to be, I don't want to embarrass you in front of your friends. It, it, it's just such a simple, because Sri Yukteswar says, spirituality is learning how to behave. I remember once when I, I met a, a Swami from another path and I remarked to Swami afterwards that I was very impressed with him because he was so considerate of other people. You know, I mean, he was like, that. I, I, he was like talking to someone about their birthday and, uh, you know, sort of apologizing for not having a gift and I'll send you something tomorrow. And I mean, those are, those seem like small things, but the masters are, the, are, are very um, gracious and very appropriate. Swamiji said Yogananda was just very gracious and very appropriate. He, 
he, he demonstrated this constant awareness of other people's needs and a complete willingness to relate to it. You know, he was not distant. When we dealt with the, um, the neighbors on the Mount Washington where Yogananda lived, one of the objection of the neighbors there said, when Yogananda lived there, he used to take walks all the time and wander around the neighborhood. He constantly interacted with the people in the neighborhood. He wasn't afraid. He didn't consider himself separate. When his car was coming up the road, he would pick up the children, carry them up the hills so they didn't have to walk. There was one old man we met who as a child, he used to always get into Yogananda's car. Because it was just his habit. Come on, get in, I'll take you up the hill. Just this very natural energy. And of course, you think of Babaji and Lahiri and you have this, you can't help but have this awestruck attitude. But then Babaji just says something simple. Well, I wouldn't want you to. I wouldn't want you to not be able to keep your word. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll meet with these people for your sake. Just such a simple gesture. But it tells you what that consciousness really is. It's our consciousness raised to a, its perfect level. And anyone who pretends to be a master or is rude in the name of spirituality is not. You know, you have to keep, you have to keep coming back to that. People get very mixed up. And if you yourself ever consider yourself to be rude, I mean justified in being unkind or inconsiderate. Um, this, is, um, this is a very big leap here, but I'm just going to make it. In, uh, when Swami Kriyananda was accused of sexual misconduct and these two women who later testified against him in that awful... Kriyananda was never accused of sexual misconduct when there was this harassment suit that was on and they brought all these... They wanted to de- destroy Kriyananda's reputation. As part of it, they brought these two rather loony women in who claimed that Swami had been just terrible with them. And so the true story was essentially that they just imposed themselves upon Swami continuously. Because, I mean, I was there. I mean, they, they would just come into his house at all hours of the day or night, just consider themselves welcome. It was quite, lo- quite nutty. And uh, Swamiji said, I didn't know how to ask them to leave without being rude. Now, to anybody else that, and this is why it was so hard to communicate, this is of course why we lost the trial, because to anybody else, that would just seem insane. But with Swamiji, that was a very real statement, because he just didn't want to hurt their feelings. And even though they were being unspeakably inappropriate, that didn't justify his being inappropriate back. He said, now I would just be rude. (laughs) If I had known essentially how they would take advantage of me, now I would be rude. But it's 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 such a small thing, but it's such an indicator of a kind of consciousness, but you see it right here. Oh, Lahiri. This was so trivial, but I understand you needed me to come, so here I am. Let's have some halwa and then I'll go away. Fascinating, isn't it? Of such little things, you know, as the whole path put together. And of such little things. When Yogananda says, take care of the minutes, and the incarnations will take care of themselves, those, those minutes, many of them are exceedingly trivial. But still, those are the ones that count, are just instinctive reaction. Will I choose myself or will I expansively relate to the need of the world around me minute by minute by minute by minute will I be appropriate will I learn how to behave and of course Jesus picked up a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple so it's not to learn how to behave is not always to be nice right 
but uh, to be appropriate in your responses to things. It's fascinating. Okay, well that might take us as far as we need to go. Any comments or questions?